I was uh, thinking about the text here today, and we consider the incarnation by habit, uh, by practice on this Sunday that comes before Christmas Day. And as I was looking through 20 plus, almost 30 years of sermons, I was very surprised to find that we have never walked through Matthew 1 together. That's unreal in that many years. Now, we have appealed to Matthew 1 numerous times. Uh, For instance, back to 2006, there was a topical sermon on the virgin birth, and Matthew 1 played very heavily into that sermon. But we've never actually stayed in Matthew 1 and worked through it. Uh, I never have, and I thought it would really be wise to do that. In fact, to deepen our knowledge of the Lord, we want to continue to feed on these narratives. There are some, let's remember, that are coming to understand them. They have not considered them at great depth, and Uh, particularly for those who are younger among us, but perhaps some who are just new to your studies of Scripture. This is a very vital passage. For others, we could probably virtually quote Matthew 1, if not be able to, and it is familiar territory to us. But to consider the old account yet again is so vital. In fact, each week we are pouring over words that we know, that we have read. Many of us have read through many times. We come to this important passage that feeds the roots of our faith in Christ. Scripture, as you may know, provides two historical accounts of Jesus' birth. Luke, the lengthier accounting, tells the story from the perspective of Mary. Luke or rather Matthew here, the more condensed version, is told from Joseph's perspective. As we move toward Matthew's account, we remember that it's no accident that the New Testament begins with a genealogy. Starting with Genesis chapters 3 and 4, the Old Testament identifies and traces the line of promise through whom Messiah would be born. The first verse of the New Testament rings like a symphony. Here He is, finally, at last, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. It identifies the long-promised One who would crush Satan's head and who would reverse the curse that's come because of sin. As we look at Matthew 1, we see there the reference to David, and that recalls Uh, epitomized in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the covenant to David that his greater son would rule the nations forever. There's a reference here as well to Abraham, recalling Genesis 12, for instance, and the promise that all nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. Then we come in Matthew chapter 1 to verses 2 through 15, which descend like any typical genealogy until we come to that verse 16. Methan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph. It is traced through one generation after another, one father to his son after another, and then verse 16 to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah, who is called Christ. This unusual way of describing Jesus' relationship to his earthly father, Joseph, certainly arrests our attention. It's like it were framed in blinking holiday lights. This unusual statement piques our interest in the uniqueness of Jesus' birth. And Matthew gets right to it. 
in verse 18 as he begins that account. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. In verses 18 through 19, Matthew describes what we might call the confounding facts that are on the ground. The confounding facts on the ground. If we want to put it that way, from Mary's perspective, verse 18, we read this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The timing and the cultural practices are crucial. Mary has been betrothed. A Jewish marriage covenant had three uh, installments in a sense. The first was engagement. The parents or a matchmaker would arrange that the children would be brought together someday. Many times the children were just young. Many times they had not met one another yet. But it was a contract between the parents to say that these two children will be married someday. The second segment came later when they came of age, the couple, and was called the betrothal period. This period was actually entered in a formal ceremony and was considered the first stage of marriage. It lasted this period for approximately a year, and it was quite unique to our understanding. We have a sense of engagement and of the marriage proper, but this betrothal period is quite uh, unique to us and to our experience. And so let me trace through that just briefly. But during this period, the couple did not live together. They lived with, at their homes with their parents. The couple was encouraged during this time to, as we use the phrase, fall in love, to pursue emotional feelings for one another and to develop the relationship before they came together. In fact, there was no sexual relationship permitted during this time. And that's the idea here Matthew draws out when he says, before they came together. You'll notice through, and I'll talk at one place where the English fails us a bit, but you'll notice throughout the text that it speaks of them as married. They were in this second segment, they were indeed married, uh, but were not together yet physically. It was really a brilliant practice. I don't think it would be possible for us to reconstruct it in our setting, but it was brilliant because during this period... It could be proven, the woman could prove to the community that she was not bearing another man's child. And it could be proven by the man, his knowledge would be confirmed that that indeed was the case. And so both of them were quite anxious not to come together during this period of time for the sake of the community at large and for the sake of one another to show to one another where they were at. Now there's obviously much more involved to it, but it had that effect. So in the betrothal period, understand that they are officially married, that the betrothal could only be ended with divorce, with a formal divorce. And I think important as well that this marriage of Joseph and Mary then, in this betrothal stage, was where sexual abstinence was at its most prioritized and guarded season in Mary's life. Socially, this was just understood that she would be very guarded during this, area, this time. It was to her advantage. It was to Joseph's advantage. It's interesting that we are in that cultural setting. Now, during this betrothal period, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
We've had a couple thousand years to get used to the idea, but believe me, it was not understood by those who surrounded her. It became publicly obvious that she was carrying a child. And while we don't want to delve too far into Luke today, it's also clear that she has known what has been coming. The angel has made this clear to her, but she has not spoken the point apparently to Joseph. And I think we could think through why that was the case for a long time, and it would be mostly conjecture, but it was not profitable for her to explain this to him. So we really won't stop either to consider the tremendously difficult position in which she was placed socially, but life on the ground would never be easy for Mary again. She was, as verse 18 puts it, with child during her betrothal period of marriage. Mysteriously, the conception we learn here right away in verse 18 was of the Holy Spirit. It is of the Holy Spirit. Matthew simply states this fact, and I don't imagine if it was added a fifth book of the Gospel. And it was wholly dedicated to explaining how this happened. I'm not sure we'd be any further along. We do not have the capacities to understand how God would bring this about biologically. But as is characteristic of the Scriptures, as Genesis 1-1 begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, so it is here, the statement is simply made. She is with child by the Spirit of God. But our ignorance about how it happened does not mean that it did not happen. Our incapacity to perceive how this is possible from everything that we know does not mean it did not happen. Nor does ignorance give us the right to propose ideas that conflict with God's holy character as generations of critics have done from Mary's neighborhood to our own. A psychology professor and certified sex therapist at one of, I hate to say, my alma maters, recently said that the virgin conception is, quote, an unethical abuse of power at best and grossly predatory at worst. He continues, the virgin birth story is about an all-knowing, all-powerful deity impregnating a human teen. There is no definition of consent that would include that scenario. There's offense there for us, isn't there? But I don't think it begins to understand the offense that Joseph and Mary would have sensed from similar types of thinking, and it's alive with us today. Like ancient pagans before him, this professor sadly reveals his own vile heart and moral blindness. That's really all that's revealed there. He looks into the face of infinite beauty, He looks at purity that cannot be fully described and he sees only the reflection of his own depravity and the debauchery of an abusive, predatory world. What we see here, make no mistake, is a moment of pristine beauty. It is a moment of grace. It is a moment of wonder. It is a moment of glory. It is beyond our comprehension. What God did, how God did it, specifically, we'll never understand. But that He did it, 
we can know is full of beauty and glory. To the more mainstream objections that have chased us through the centuries, that a miracle such as this is entirely impossible, that the story was concocted to cover Mary's sin with another man, we can only begin to address the point. But no other explanation, let us say first of all, can be provided for the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. There simply is no other way. No other explanation can be provided for Christ's sinless life. And historically, there's some complications to denying this reality as well. It's hard to believe that a handful, a small number of Christian leaders were so clever as to invent a narrative that overwhelms our capacities to comprehend and that they also were able to fool all of Jesus' disciples into believing this myth. Really smart conspirators, really stupid disciples, and really stupid second generation of leaders, who went on record right out of the gate in the early centuries of the church to say that the Christian faith rested solidly in this doctrine, in this teaching. The early documents of the church demonstrate a deeply and widely held belief in the virgin conception. A bold assertion of this belief. We know, like Joseph and Mary knew, this is impossible to believe if we have to explain it all first. But God's people through the centuries have held tenaciously to this doctrine as all that is possible in the story of our salvation. And when you're facing execution, as so many of them did, so many of the leaders in that second generation, not to speak of the apostles themselves, but so many leaders in that next generation died for Christ. When you're facing execution, you're very quick to change your mind about insisting on a myth. Now the myth that rises to greater significance is, the myth from the pagan standpoint, is the resurrection of Jesus. But the resurrection of Jesus and the incarnation of Christ through virgin conception and birth were the solid fundamental beliefs of the early church, and they died for this belief. Many. Can you imagine people dying in large numbers to insist on the belief in Santa Claus? It wouldn't happen. But the early church, holding tenaciously to this historical reality of the virgin conception, was adamant and proclaimed this mystery widely and enthusiastically. God had intervened and brought salvation history to its climax. We will be the first to admit that God does not work this way every day, every generation, every century. But when salvation history works, out, it works itself out, there are moments where God intervenes and He does so in profoundly unusual, miraculous ways. And the critics that line up and say, that can't happen, would be the same critics lined up and say, how dull if it hadn't happened. 
We can choose any Savior we want if there's no miracle. But God in His mercy intervenes in time to say, I will get your attention. I reveal this truth to you. Embrace it. So as we come back to the confounding facts on the ground, they are indeed confounding. Mary is with child from the Holy Spirit. More on that in a moment. Let's consider next Joseph and the difficult, confounding situation that he faces. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Understanding the betrothal period, this makes sense. He is to divorce her, and he wants to do so quietly. Now, what does Matthew mean when he says that Joseph is a just man? Many times our mind goes directly to kind of change that word into a merciful man, a non-vindictive man, a kind man. I'm certain that Joseph was all of those things, but that's not the typical meaning of the word just in Scripture. I think the idea is rather indicating to us here that Joseph wanted to marry Mary, but he determined it would not be right, it would not be just to do so. And without delving too far into what we can't know, what we do know is he knew Mary was pregnant. He knew that the child was not his. And as a righteous man, he wanted to honor God. I think just points us this way, it had become painfully clear that Mary's heart was not wholly devoted to God. From a human standpoint, from what he could see, this was the conclusion that he had to draw. She was not willing to, God, to honor God under the test of betrothal, so Joseph had to end the betrothal in devotion to God. There seems to be a hard play in his heart of love and respect for this woman and yet a confusion that leads to say, I must stand with God here. Now that's not to say that it's evil to marry a woman who's pregnant with another man's wife. Not necessarily. May not be wisdom in doing that, but not necessarily sinful. But here there is a sense that she is showing her heart. Being a just man... He determines to divorce her, being a merciful man, we could fill in the word. He determines to do so quietly. He had the freedom to put her to public humiliation. But he wasn't going to do that. Now let that settle in. We've certainly considered it before. But let it settle in again. Let me say it this way. God permitted Joseph to experience profound depths of emotional sorrow and heartache due entirely to his ignorance. Think on that. God revealed... When did God reveal to Mary what was going on? It was before she conceived. When does he reveal to Joseph what's going on? Mary's already pregnant and to the point where publicly everyone knows it. And Joseph is in this deep consternation. And God hasn't told him anything. God chose to permit Joseph to suffer the travail of discovering this woman that he loved, this woman from whom every, by every indication loved God fervently. She was a fraud. She betrayed him. 
She completely fooled him. She crushed his heart and left him in a swirling fog of confusion and grief. I'll come back to that in a moment. We come then, secondly, to the enlightening revelation from above. As he considered these things, verse 20, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. As he considered these things with great angst and consternation, he had to be severely confused, knowing the Mary of Luke chapter 1's Magnificat. He had to be terribly shocked and confused. But behold, I I love it that the ESV translates that word. Some translations don't, but it means to get our attention. It was startling to Joseph. Suddenly, he had determined to honor God by divorcing a woman who from all appearances was not committed to honoring God due to a lack of affection for the Lord, due to a lack of affection for His Word. And now God's angelic messenger was directing him to do the opposite. Do not be afraid to take her as your wife. God's angelic messenger is directing him to do exactly what he thought he should not do. Now here I mention that phrase in the English translations that often fail us here. But he says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Literally, it is do not fear to take Mary your wife. To take her is that third element of the marriage. Don't be afraid to take her to yourself, to your home, to continue forward with the marriage. She was already his wife. And what had happened to her in this pregnancy would have made it just and righteous in that setting to divorce. They had not been together physically. And that opportunity was there, but the angel is instructing him differently. And the fact that Joseph was just in his determinations would indicate that many other people would have agreed with that and now are going to disagree with what he's doing. But there's an instruction here from the Lord. He's now to do so to take her without hesitation, but why? An explanation is given there at the end of verse 20. For, see the connection there, For, here's why I'm telling you this, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What a word of relief, if certainly confusing. The angel reveals to Joseph that the dread evil he has witnessed is no evil at all. Mary's child is a result not of adultery, as any sane person would have had to conclude, but her child is the result of a a salvation historical intervention by God into human affairs. Carson says it this way, there is no hint of pagan deity-human coupling in crassly physical terms. There's certainly a lot of that in mythology, but not here. Instead, the power of the Lord manifest in the Holy Spirit who is expected to be active in the Messianic age miraculously brought about the conception. This was a unique moment in salvation history. Joseph now learns this and is called to take Mary to himself. A second word of instruction follows in verse 21. She will, be, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus, the Greek form of the name Joshua, 
which means something like Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh, God, saves. Again, the angel provides an explanation for this directive in verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus for, here's the explanation, he will save his people from their sins. This is God's promised Messiah. This one has come to rescue sinners from God's just judgment against them as lawbreakers. This one has come to rescue God's people from the curse of sin. What is happening here is no abuse of power. It is pure grace to sinners. And so you will have the privilege to name Him Jesus. You are called to do so for this reason. Now it's possible at verse 22 that we should read all this has taken place as opposed to all this took place. We could read the phrase all this has taken place and it might be that the angel keeps talking right through verse 23. In any event, it does provide explanation. He will save His people from their sins. This is the prophecy. And it fulfills past prophecy. Verse 22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel. Matthew quotes here Isaiah 7, verse 14, which we've read earlier today. How this verse addresses King Ahaz of Judah and also prophesies the birth of Jesus centuries later is a challenging question. It's a challenging question that we've taken up in years past. We don't have time to sit on that long today. I think there is a near fulfillment in a sketchy way in that passage. Some would disagree. But certainly there is a grand fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. As a virgin conceives, a young woman of marriageable age, but understood to be one who has not come together with a man, she will bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. He is Emmanuel, a meaning that epitomizes the presence of God with His people. It's not that Emmanuel was Jesus' name as such. He will be named this, not in the sense that people called Him Emmanuel. It's just a description. But it might be something like we might use the word, He's Mr. Frugal. Well, no, nobody thinks that's actually His name, right? Or she's Miss Penny Pincher. It's, just a, it's a descriptive term. I think that's the idea here. He is God with us. That will describe His work and His ministry. His name, Jesus. But His description and influence, also God with us. It recalls the Shekinah glory cloud dwelling with God's people, going with them where they went and leading them where they should go. For God's people, there's no greater hope or longing. There's no greater confidence and joy than to live in the presence of God. He will epitomize that. He will be God with us. This child will be the very presence of the Lord among you. This is amazingly good news, is it not? But let's go back to a few moments ago. Remember where we started? It started with Joseph suffering gut-wrenching grief over the betrayal and the infidelity of the woman he had chosen to love and to lead the rest of his life, the woman to whom he was betrothed. And we come back to that thought that God allowed this. 
This was the timing that God orchestrated. He sent the angel to make sense of all of it to Joseph only after he suffered the trial and the difficulty. God sovereignly sent that angel then. We cannot know why. We don't know how God intended to use that matter in Joseph's life, but it does teach us something vital about our God and about living in His presence. There are times when everything seems to scream at you one single ugly conclusion. And there is no other conclusion than that one single ugly conclusion. That's all there is. Be careful at such times. You're not God. You don't know all. And if He's your child... He is walking right there with you. Joseph didn't sense it. His world had turned upside down and fallen apart. And there was no other conclusion humanly. But we don't write the script. We don't pull the strings and control the story. God alone does that. Where we enter those seasons, may we take hope. Of course, your life and my life are never going to fall exactly in this place on the line of salvation history. There's nothing in our life that's this big and this bold, but for Joseph, what he was facing was normal human anxiety and sorrow of the kind that we all face. And we can then be certain as we watch this unfold that in ways that are every bit as real, we encounter times when we're unable to imagine a worse set of circumstances. Be patient. Remember that God is there. And He specializes in turning suffering into joy. If not in this life, then when we meet Him face to face. We journey on in that hope and in that confidence. Not because of our great faith, but because of our faith in a very great and sovereign God. Beyond any doubt, coupled to what we don't know, we can be certain that Joseph learned obedience through what he suffered. As the narrative continues to unfold, we come then thirdly to the faithful obedience of Jesus' parents. The faithful obedience of Jesus' parents, first of all, in marrying one another. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife to him. That's his great beauty. He did what God said. The God who was present with him in times of confusion was now here with him in the light, even though people wouldn't understand. And he took Mary to be his wife, as his heart seems to be indicating really desired. She was profoundly blessed to be chosen by God for this unique moment in salvation history, and she knew it, but it was no easy road. In like manner, Joseph made a decision to obey God, a decision that was going to cost him dearly. Together, they would never be understood by most people in their lives. They would forever be, quote-unquote, that couple. That's probably all people needed to say, that couple. But with courage, they obeyed the Lord, and they lived as husband and wife. 
We see, secondly, their obedience in naming their son, verse 25. Just simple follow-through on what the angel had commanded, what uh, the revelation that Joseph had received, but knew her not, that is, Joseph did not have sexual knowledge of Mary, his wife, until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The virgin conception then became the virgin birth. I think we should not be afraid at all to read into the word until what I believe it actually means. He did not have that knowledge of her until she had given birth to a son. That is that Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Virgin conception, virgin birth. She did not die as a virgin. She died as a married woman and a mother of multiple children, several of whom we meet in the pages of Scripture. But when she was delivered of her firstborn in Bethlehem, what is important here is that Joseph named him Jesus, named him Yahweh is salvation. Simple obedience, bringing honor and glory to God, finding their joy in doing what God called them to do, as difficult a road as this would be. So this narrative reveals how God chose to act at a pivotal moment in salvation history, namely to send His eternal Son as Messiah to redeem us from our lost condition. It stands speaking that truth to us through the ages. It's fundamental to our salvation. It is important then that we know it well and read it properly. But for those who do not know Christ as personal Savior, for those who are not walking, as we see Joseph and Mary walking here, in careful obedience to the Word of the Lord, knowing that the Word of the Lord is your life, seeking to align your life with it, and receiving from God His gift of grace, it's important to see Jesus as Savior. To be the Savior indicates that there is something from which we must be saved. And the Bible never shies away from telling us that we are lawbreakers, that you are a lawbreaker as I am. We take the Word of God in His command and we don't do it. The prohibitions of what God has revealed, we do quite naturally and willingly. What our culture teaches us to think is that's freedom. God's message to each of us today is that's slavery. And Jesus Christ came to break that bondage, to break those chains, to sever that connection that we have to rebellion against the Lord, not obedience to Him. And He did this as the Savior. First, by standing in the place and bearing our sin and dying the death of a sinner. He was no sinner but standing in our place as the Lamb of God, substituting His life for His people. And He rose from the dead. Again, a truth and a reality we can't explain how, but a truth and a reality we must come to trust that He defeated death for us for our justification, for our forgiveness. I encourage you to embrace that truth today if you have not. 
for those of us who have, and for us particularly as we gather here through in the midst of our series through Romans, we gather as Gentiles. What a response is ours. We have embraced Israel's Messiah. The wonder of sins forgiven in Christ. Acknowledging our blindness in sin and our forfeiture of God's gift of forgiveness. And knowing that not understanding forgiveness made us the most hopeless people in this world. Oh, there's joys to find. There's satisfactions to pursue. But there is no settled hope for those who do not know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But we've come to see it. We, people can stare beauty in the face and see nothing but their broken world and their own depraved passions. It's like looking into that glass where there's something on the other side, but because of the lighting, all you see is you. That's where people are. But we have come to see the face of Christ, the glory of it, the forgiveness of sin, and the joy and the hope that is there. That is a reason to sing. That's a mystery to sing about. We say sometimes that some things are too good to be true. But the more I read God's Word, the more I realize that there are some things that are too good not to be true. And one of those realities is the virgin birth of the eternal Son of God who took the penalty of my sin, who stood in my place, paid the cost, and defeated death. The only proper response to this is awe and worship and glory to God. I'm going to find anything in myself to praise, but I praise Him. The only active response is to praise Him. The only active response is to obey Him. To walk in humble obedience to what God has said, as we see demonstrated here by Joseph and Mary, especially when we encounter trials and confusion. Not that we don't at other times equally, but in the sense of a concentrated obedience to the Lord when we walk in times of confusion and heartache. Lives centered on the promises of God, walking in obedience to the call of God. We just trudge forward in Joseph and Mary's steps because we trudge forward in the steps of our Savior who learned obedience through what He suffered and who suffered for our obedience and suffered for our forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, we praise You for the wonder of this account. Human words struggle to make clear what we find here. We thank You for the brevity, for the truthfulness, for the direct, straightforward revelation of how the eternal Son of God came into this world to die the physical death that we deserve to die. We praise You that He reigns today as David's greater Son in fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies that He has come to crush Satan's head. And while we struggle along here, I pray that we would walk in dependent, obedient trust and thanksgiving. Lord, call us to that today. You have. I pray that we'd respond. That we'd respond for the glory of Your name and the joy of our souls. Through Christ we pray. Amen.